Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 62 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to welcome Edwin Ted Bergen, professor and chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. In 2019, Bergen was awarded the Heinemann Prize for Astrophysics by the American Astronomical Society and the American Institute of Physics. This is one of the highest prizes offered in the field for, quote, his pioneering work in astrochemistry and innovative contributions to our understanding of the physics and chemistry of star and planet formation. But today, we'll primarily be discussing whether our early solar nebula's chemical makeup actually preordained that life would evolve on our own Earth. Bergen joins us from Ann Arbor. Ted, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, please tell us what an astrochemist is. It's, it's an interdisciplinary field that has aspects of astronomy. So I'm observing astronomical objects, but I'm actually studying the chemistry of, of the molecules that are present in space. So when stars are born, they're born in molecule-dominated clouds. And when planets are born, they're born in molecule-dominated disks. The molecules have a very rich chemistry where you can observe, you know, molecules that we're friendly with, such as water and other things like CO2 uh, can be observed, uh, carbon monoxide. And we're marching our way up in uh, complexity as well. And so what we do is, you know, we, we observe these molecules in space, we try to measure the composition, and then we try to use what we know about chemistry from the labs here on Earth to understand how those molecules came to be. So when I was writing my book, Distant Wanderers, more than two decades ago, there was a debate about whether the complex molecules necessary for the evolution of life as we know it could form in situ or whether their presence in the inner solar system was a result of simply serendipity. It's, it's clear that uh, the chemistry that predates uh, and is uh, and concurrent with uh, the birth of a planet uh, leads to the creation of uh, carbon-rich organic molecules and water. Uh, and, and we know that. And we know that when the Earth was born, it was seeded. Uh, with this material. So really the question is, did the Earth break everything apart and then reconstitute it on its own? Uh, Or was there anything particular about the supply? That is, you know, were particular molecules supplied uh, that were key to jump-starting life? And then are those molecules common elsewhere? And we don't know the answer to that whether, you know, the, the particular form of supply mattered, right? And what I mean by that, something like hydrogen cyanide, which we, you know, it's a, a, not a very a nice molecule in terms of life today. But if you put a bunch of hydrogen cyanide molecules together, uh, you can get a, a DNA base. Now, what is, right? hydro- so, what is hydrogen cyanide? Because people hear cyanide. It's HCN, a hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen. It's a poisonous gas, yeah. 
Okay. So so you, you can't breathe it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's dangerous in the lab. But right? ironically, and, I mean, what's incredible is ironically, what is so poisonous to us, we humans rather, could have sparked the beginning of our, our nucleic t- uh, acids. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there's been some experiments in the lab that show if you take some hydrogen cyanide and a couple other compounds, uh, you can make RNA, uh, ribonucleic acid. And and so that, you know, that's pretty, and others that show that you could make amino acids, uh, which are uh, the building blocks of proteins. And so maybe, you know, the the supply of material like that is key to the start of life. It's We don't know. What we do know is based upon observations is that the creation of these molecules is is clearly prevalent and is likely present in every forming uh, planetary disk. So you don't think the the hydrogen cyanide came from the interstellar medium? You think it could have formed in situ uh, or it could maybe it's a little of both? So in situ means that in my mind that the Earth did it all. And you just have to put the stuff on there and Earth eventually will will do what it needs to do to make the molecules via geochemistry. Then the question is whether the abiotic chemistry that is out there in interstellar space, interstellar space chemistry, which does make simple molecules by life standards, but it made the water that's on our planet. Right. The oxygen first found the hydrogen out there in interstellar space, and that's what made it to our planet was water that first formed out in interstellar space. And so the, 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 what we do know is that you make these molecules, right? You made the water out there. You can make these other simple things. And so they were supplied. <clears throat> but if you look at it, uh, you know, hydrogen is the most abundant. It's the first element, element and the most abundant element in the universe. People don't, probably don't realize that. And then oxygen is the third most abundant element yep. in the universe which people really probably don't realize. So it's not really a huge surprise that given the fact that these two elements are so abundant that they're going to come together magically to form water, even in the interstellar medium, right? Uh, But on the other hand, you could also argue, I guess, uh, I mean, there's still this water debate, and we're going to discuss that a bit later in 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 this episode. But I guess you could also argue that, you know, given the right amount of hydrogen and oxygen in the inner solar system with these forming planetesimals, that water is going to form anyway in a, in, as these planetesimals kind of come together, right? Right. So, so if, if you just have hydrogen, you know, sort of uh, in, in, in the silicate rock, the silicates have oxygen. So sand, right, you know, has the silicon atoms and oxygen atoms, right? Or, right. or glass, right? Right. And and if you put hydrogen in, in that in the in those rocks, it, it's it's possible that, you know, you could just make water from the hydrogen uh, reacting uh, with the rock and, and stealing the oxygen, right, from the silicon. Now I'm not a geochemist. I, I, I you know I don't know much about those things, but is what I can tell you is that the chemistry associated with planet formation, makes water. So that's good. Was there a chemical gradient in our early solar system from heavy metals to lighter elements in the outer solar system? So what do we know about the makeup of the protoplanetary nebula's chemical structure dating back to 4.56 billion years ago 
at the very beginning of our solar system's formation. Do we have an idea how the elements were distributed from very near the early sun to out to a Pluto-like distance at the Kuiper Belt? Yeah, so we, we have a, a generic idea, and, and it relates to temperature. That is, if you're, if you're born closer to the sun, it's hotter than it is when, when you're further away, and, and that just makes sense. But if you take molecules, right, so what we're focusing on, let's say we focus on water, okay? Water can exist in two phases. It could either be a solid, as an ice, or it could be a vapor. And that's because the pressures are so low that the liquid phase uh, doesn't exist. And if, if you have water close to the star, it's as vapor because it's warmer. And as you go further away, the water freezes out and it's as an ice. Now, why does this matter? This matters because the solids that we see today are what comprises the planets, the asteroids, and the comets. That is the... The planets, the asteroids, and the comets were made from the solids. They weren't made from the gas. Okay? So, so there's a gradient in the ice content as you head to the outer solar system. That is, in terms of the silicates are present throughout all of the solar system outside, except for very, very close to the star. All right? So they're, they're present. And then condensed on those silicates... Uh, is water ice, and we think the water ice line is beyond uh, the radius where the Earth is today. Why is that? It's because if the Earth formed outside of that, that water ice line where all the water was ice, we would have a much higher fraction of our composition would be ice. Uh, and we have, you know, 0.1%, I think, ice by mass. So a very small amount. We would have significantly higher if we formed primarily beyond the ice line. Okay, so we have water-poor objects, that's the Earth and Mars and Venus, and then you go outwards, you're beyond the water ice line, and you have Jupiter. Jupiter's a gas giant, but it's moons. Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, they're full of ice, water ice. Okay, and then you get further and further away, and other compounds can condense uh, hydrocarbons, so uh, methane, and that's where you get the, the moons of Jupiter. Uh, Titan with its, you know, methane seas and a methane hydro hydrological cycle, right? So there's a gradient, if you will, uh, of of the the in the content of the solar system that was imprinted in the bodies that happened very early as they were forming, and it it very neatly just relates to temperature and and simple simple chemistry. And in terms of, you know, we, we hear continually about the importance, uh, you know, people say, well, our sun is a second or third generation star. And if it weren't, we wouldn't have the metal, the iron content to form the kind of planet that we enjoy living on, rather. How important were New Rice Supernovae in providing the kind of heavy metal content that our inner solar system needed, and particularly our Earth needs? The first generation stars were, you know, collapsing balls of hydrogen, helium, and gas, and they made these heavy elements that they then seeded out there to interstellar space, and then another generation comes along and, and makes more. And, you know, the, the, the Earth is made of, you know, the, the stardust that was created via these metals, basically those metals silicon magnesium you know they combine with oxygen along with iron and they make silicates 
tiny little particles that we know are floating in space. And they are critical uh, for the formation of planets such as our own. With, without them being abundant, it'd be very difficult to make planetary systems such as our own. And so are, and these, so, yes, are, these, are these silicates really kind of like grains of sand or dust particles? Is that what they are? So they're, the average size is, is a, a tenth of a micron. So it's, I think, what is it, like something like a thousandth the width of a human hair or something like that. So it's, you know, really, really tiny sands, tiny grains, uh, you know, smaller than the grains of sand that you see on beach. But that's what's seeding just general interstellar space. But when you get into a planet-forming disk, those grains have coagulated. These, this, they, they've grown so they're about like millimeter or centimeter sizes. So they're pebbles. And astronomers can actually observe these pebbles via the, they absorb emission from the star and they re-emit them, uh, re-emit that emission at uh, radio wavelengths. And we can use our radio telescopes to actually observe. And we see these these pebble-rich disks. And those pebbles are, are, are those silicates from interstellar space that are going to be on their way to making planets. So just to be clear about this, these pebbles, these little micro, micro, micron-sized, sub-micron-sized pebbles, is that right? Sub-micron-sized? I don't know. Is well, there's right? sub-microns and grains that grow to pebbles. Grow to pebbles, okay. But the grains, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Are you, you're saying that these grains, these silicate grains that are out there, that survive, they survive the supernovae, and they're just out there floating in space, right? That- so the, the, that's, that's a debate. There's a debate whether they actually survive the, the full shocks. The supermovas have many shocks, episodes of shocking of the gas. Uh-huh. It's clear that the silica, their silicates are made in, uh, as stars die. Right. Uh, so as a star like your sun puffs up, it's, when it's on its way to dying, it'll puff up its outer envelope. Right. And uh, we see dust grains being made uh, in those stars, and they are certainly seeded to space. And it's possible also that the supernova uh, seed space with these grains as well. It's certainly clear the supernova seed space with iron, silicon, oxygen, and all that other So these uh, silicates, st- they, 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 they really run from uh, microscopic sizes on up to pebble sizes. I mean, when you're talking about a pebble, That's- when you're talking about a pebble, let's just be clear about that. Are you, are you saying a like literally a pebble that you might pick up on a beach that would be a a pain in the butt in your sneaker, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, are we talking about that size pebble, or are we talking about something bigger? Yeah. So, so the what what happens is grains are about you know this tenth of a micron size floating out there in interstellar space. They get collected together into a molecular this cloud of gas that condenses in the, the interstellar medium, likely as a nearby supernova pushed material together. Right. That collapses, makes a star and a planet-forming disk, and in the planet-forming disk, those tiny little grains, uh, it gets dense enough that they find each other and they grow to basically centimeter-sized pebbles that you can hold in your hand. But, I mean, it if we could- were cruising through interstellar space uh, in our nearby inter- interstellar medium... We would not have um, dust on our windshield, so to speak. I mean, that wouldn't be an issue. Would it? It, it, it it depends how fast you're moving, <laughs> but you know, a typical patch of uh, of interstellar space, you know, one meter cube box will not have that many grains okay. uh, in it. But it, but if you were to travel at the speed of light, you would you would find them. 
So interstellar travel uh, approaching relativistic speeds, which is a that goal, would, that could be a tr- that could be a trouble spot, right? That will be a trouble spot. Yeah, Good indeed. gosh. But they but the the fascinating thing is that these silicates are non-reactive. I mean, that's what you you you've written in your papers that these are non-reactive grains and they act as a method of transport for these other compounds. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so they're 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 non-reactive in the sense that they're they're inert internally, by and large, at least at this stage, and molecules or atoms can condense onto them, and, and that's the process is the the physical process called physical adsorption, and so they they adsorb onto the grain. So that just means that you know a molecule collides with the grain and it sticks and it stays on there and and it's bond it's bonded to the surface. Uh, they can the grains can also operate as catalysts. So we think, for example, that water ice is formed directly on the grain itself. It's the water doesn't form via chemistry in the gas. It's hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms finding each other on the grains to eventually make water. And so the grains are are also important in in other ways in space. But it's literally not hyperbole to say that these tiny grains out there that have survived for eons, billions of years, just floating around in space, serendipitously brought probably the building blocks of some of the compounds that we are using here today on Earth. These molecular compounds kind of like hitch a ride on these grains. In a way, yeah. I mean, it's it's a journey. Okay. long one uh, (laughs) by any standard. A recent paper co-authored by you, finds that most of the carbon on Earth was actually delivered from the interstellar medium. I guess it, the other question is, if it didn't come from the interstellar medium, where would it come from? <laughs> where where would it come from, right? <laughs> yeah, so so the, the, it's a neat little thing, right? So the 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 Earth got its, so, its, its materials from the solids, all right? So the carbon that the Earth got it had to receive from some form of carbon that was in the solid state. And if we look out there in interstellar space, you could see, you know, in a typical cloud of gas that's going to make a sun, you will find that the carbon is in two places. It's, it's either in carbon monoxide or it's in some sort of refractory carbonaceous material. What I mean by refractory, it's, it's a material that is harder to break apart. It's when you heat it up, it doesn't break apart as easily. All right. So if you look at the temperature and where the, when, when the earth was born, it was the most of its material don't have that much water. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that means the temperature was high enough so that water would be all in the solid or would all be all in the gas. Right. Right. Carbon dioxide is more volatile than water. And by that, I mean, it's going to be in the gas. So you know right away that the Earth got its carbon from probably that refractory component. Okay. okay. So that, that's one very important point. The problem is uh, if you look at the amount of that material, that is carbon is more abundant. It's a more abundant element than silicon. Right? Right. And if, if you just look at the amount of carbon that's out there, that's, you know, if half of the carbon is in this refractory form, it will have a carbon to silicon ratio that's about, you know, 
I think it's like five or something like that. But that is much, much higher than the carbon to silicon ratio that the Earth has. The Earth has very little carbon by mass. Okay. Right. That's going to be one of my points. So you told me in Forbes that Earth has below below 0.1% of its mass in carbon. That probably would come to a shock to most people. I mean, it is a shocking number. Uh, Below 0.1% of its total mass in carbon. I mean, that is quite shocking. But then you told me that Earth's fate as a carbon poor planet may actually be our saving grace. That's because right. too much carbon and and Earth's atmosphere would be like Venus, trapping heat from the sun and maintaining a temperature of about 880 degrees Fahrenheit. Too little carbon and Earth would resemble Mars, an inhospitable place unable to support water-based life with temperatures around minus 60. So our planet's <laughs> initial... Uh, uh, minus 60 Fahrenheit. Uh, our, so our planet's car- initial carbon makeup may have dictated it's long-term fate. So the, 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 it's amazing that the Earth is this, has this tiny sprinkling of carbon, but yet we're still here, right? And so the, the first problem, the first issue is that there's so much carbon out there that we have to destroy that. And, and we found that if most of the Earth's materials uh, formed very early within the first million years of evolution, they would achieve the carbon-poor state. And so that's one important point that a lot of the most of the materials that made up the earth, they were constructed fairly early in the evolution within uh, a million years after the, the collapse of the material that made our sun. And so then the question is, OK, well, all right, we have a tiny amount of carbon. If you got 10 times more of that, 100 times more of that, because there's tons of carbon out there, what would happen? And at some point, you'll just turn into Venus. That is, you, you won't be able to, the, the Earth has, most of the Earth's carbon is in rocks and not in the atmosphere. And it's just, at some point, you would overwhelm that cycle that puts the carbon in rocks and you would just have a CO2-dominated atmosphere. And, I don't know when that, that point is, right? but it exists and you'll just be this inhospitable place. Give us a... Uh I mean, this plate tectonics continually comes up in this podcast. <laughs> it's like every episode we mention plate tectonics. <laughs> and I even did an article for Sky and Telescope years ago on can you have intelligent life without plate tectonics? Because, in other words, can you have intelligent life without some means for the planet to regulate its temperature over cosmic time? And so give us a definition of plate tectonics and... Why that's important from an astrochemical point of view? Sure. So, so the it's it. I think it's I, I, we should be fair to the the geophysicists and geochemists. That this is their their ballywick here. But the, the 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 key statement is is that what plate tectonic does. Okay. So the, let's it's it it leads to a cycle of carbon. Okay. So CO two is in the atmosphere, and it can it gets. Uh, it's soluble in the water and you have about 60 times the amount of CO2 in the water than you do in the air. Okay, so there's already more carbon in water than there is in the air. That's one statement, all right? And then the the CO2 in in the water actually reacts with the shells of uh, dead carbon-bearing life forms there and it makes carbonates, all right? 
And plate tectonics pushes that material that's at the bottom of the ocean floor and pushes that under the continental shelf. So it, it takes the carbon that was once in the atmosphere, now in the ocean, sunk, sunk to the bottom, reacts, makes carbonates, and pushes that deeper into the mantle where it can get outgassed at some point later on back into the atmosphere as CO2. But the process for the outgassing takes a long time, such that there's 600 times more carbon sequestered as rock than there is in the ocean, all right? So 600 times 60 is the amount of carbon that's locked up that's not in the atmosphere. So a very tiny bit of carbon uh, that we have is in our atmosphere. Most of it's locked up in rocks, all right? And that's all due to the cycle. We have oceans, that's critical, and we have plate tectonics. Is that a prerequisite for life? We don't know. And But even with that tiny amount of carbon in, in, in our chemical makeup from the outset, that's almost still too much. With You know, if we hadn't had, I mean, you could argue that without, uh, it's, you know, without plate tectonics, <laughs> it would still be too much carbon, right? It, it's that, well, Venus doesn't have plate tectonics and all of its carbon, similar roughly about the, the amount that the Earth has trapped in the mantle, uh, is in the atmosphere, and that leads to a, a runaway greenhouse effect and those 800-degree Fahrenheit temperatures. And so, yes, uh, for the perspective of the Earth, plate tectonics is crucial, crucial, crucial. Without it, uh, we probably wouldn't be here. Uh, but is that a requirement for all the various bajillion planets that are out there? That's, it's a good question. Are there parts of the Milky Way that are simply more carbon-rich than others. That's the other thing. Right. So there, there, there is an elemental abundance gradient in the galaxy, and, and there is a concept that someone put out there of a, a galactic habitable zone. And, you know, I, 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 you know, maybe. I mean, there's so many other factors involved as to the supply of carbon to a planet that it's not clear to me that, that one factor over another uh, will lead uh, to, I, I, I actually think the physics of the planet formation process itself is more important or that outcome is more important than what that gradient is doing. What about the possibility for silicon-based life or any sort of other life that could be based on something besides carbon? Uh, silicon is the, the one that's posited because it has the same amount of bonds as carbon, right? Right. But the, 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 the trick is, I, I would say, I would argue that it is highly unlikely and almost, I would say, impossible to make a silicate-based life. Because as a starting condition, the silicates were locked up in the hardest form uh, for the, the atoms to be accessed via chemistry. Okay, what, what, what's going on here? Is that is, the Earth is made of carbon, or the life on the Earth is made of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen for the most part, with other elements that are important, but we're mostly water and you have carbon as the backbone of chemistry, right? Right. Why is that? Those are the volatile elements. Those are the elements that like to be the gases or the ices and not the refractories. Now, carbon's a slightly different story, right? Because I, I gave you that little nuance. Uh, but there's enough carbon around that you can have these other forms. 
And and so they're why why do the volatiles matter? They can move around more readily, right? When you're stuck as a as a rock, those those elements are frozen in place. And and, and right? give us a, a parenthetical definition again of volatile. The, the these are elements that are more easily placed uh, into the gas. Okay. Okay. Or or another way of saying it, they're they're harder to get into the ices, right? So in other and words, they, more- they can change. They can change from liquid to solid to gas phases. That's right. Okay. That's right. So the, the trick is, is that the silicates are stuck as rock out there in interstellar space. They're already as these tiny little grains. Right. Right. Whereas there's extra carbon and, and water floating around for you make all these interesting molecules. Right. Whereas the silicates are stuck as silicates and they don't do anything. So at the start of planet formation, it's preordained that the silicates are going to stay as rocks. And I just don't see how you would extract enough to have a free chemistry, particularly when you're going to have carbon and water doing this thing. Is there another element, though, aside from uh, uh, sil- carbon and silicon that might be potential? So you want to look at the most abundant elements, right? And and so you're you're left with then uh, nitrogen or hydrogen or oxygen. So hydrogen comes to planets like the Earth as is water, right? And right. so water we know is super important. So so the question then would be: Could there be life based on another liquid than water, right? And so that's that's an that's an interesting question mm. that that relates to this in a way. But I think it, it's very hard if you look out there the chemistry of space is the chemistry of organics and making water, okay? And what is the chemistry of life? It's water and organics. And organics so simply would, means carbon-based molecules, high, right? Carbon-based molecules, hydrocarbons with oxygen thrown in and nitrogen and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, so let's go so, through the, 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 the... Actually, in astrobiology, there there's a, like a little acronym... For the five or six elements which are thought to be necessary for life as we know it. Carbon, yeah, yeah, hydrogen, yeah. nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. That's right. Okay. So carbon we talked about. Hydrogen we talked about. Uh, nitrogen we haven't really talked about. Oxygen we talked about. And we haven't talked about phosphorus or sulfur. Nitrogen, I think, comes with the carbon. That it, it comes in the organic molecules, the you know, so molecules comprise of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen, and, and a little bit of oxygen. All right, so I think the nitrogen story is tied to carbon. So how abundant is nitrogen? I mean, in the, is it ranking the top so, 10? So, so it, it's, a, it's the fifth most abundant element, right? After okay. Carbon is four. So oxygen three, then carbon, then nitrogen. Uh, so it's very abundant. It's mostly as molecular nitrogen out there, we think. Uh, in interstellar space or in the, the molecular clouds, but that's a it's a very very highly volatile substance. It likes to stay in the gas, so it makes it hard for you to get nitrogen into um, the solids. Uh, but if if you lock it and stick it with that refractory carbon, then you can get plenty. You can get the nitrogen that you need. So the nitrogen story probably is tied to that of carbon. Is nitrogen made in? Supernovae, or is it where is it made? Our sun will get up to carbon and then stop. Okay. Uh, stars more massive than our sun can uh, start getting to the the next step where you get to the CNO cycle, 
where you can make carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. Uh-huh. And and so it's 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 supernova. So the the nitrogen it makes up what seventy two percent of our atmosphere or something like that, right? That's right. It's a pretty stable gas. It's it's non-reactive to a certain extent. I mean, it's not dangerous, is it? No. How important is nitrogen for our, our bodily function? There, there, there's a whole cycle of nitrogen into the atmosphere, into plants, and then, you know, consumed by humans and so on and so forth. And so it, it's an important molecule for biochemistry. Well, the interesting thing was uh, my late father had a pecan orchard. Uh, we were out one day in the spring, and so there was this clover that grows, red and white clover, actually, that grows up between these uh, pecan trees. Uh, my dad said, these are important. I said, why? And he said, because they produce uh, nitrogen nodules. The clover takes the, the nitrogen from our atmosphere and turns them into nitrogen-rich nodules, which acts as fertilizer for the pecan trees. You know? There you go. For plants to use this nitrogen, it has to extract it from the atmosphere in this ingenious yeah, that's right. way. That's, that's right. I thought that was fascinating. No, uh, it's, it's it's all part of the cycle, right? And 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 the our biochemistry uh, uses that nitrogen as well. It, it's it and you know we consume it by eating the plants. So what about the phosphorus? Because there was actually a po- a, a phosphorus news flap <laughs> that uh, oh, that, that came ago, about a yeah. couple of days ago, uh, not co- a couple of years ago, or maybe five years ago. Seems so to... phosphorus is is a is a component of. Uh, you know, very important molecules for the the evolution of knives. Component of, of uh, the the backbone of DNA, uh, and uh, the a, a molecule that um, the 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 molecule that all life on Earth uses for energy is uh, adenosine triphosphate. It's like the battery of the cell. It's where you store energy. Also involves phosphorus, so you have DNA and you have energy, right? So phosphorus seems to be a component of, of, of really important uh, biological molecules. Where did it come from? It's it's the the phosphorus that we see today likely came carried in the by the rocks themselves, right? So so we know when when you know take meteorites and you look at the composition of meteorites. They actually have phosphorus combined inside the rock itself, either with the silicate or maybe with the carbonaceous component. It's hard to say. Uh, and so basically the interstellar grains uh, in some way carried the phosphorus to us. And, and, and that's probably also true for the sulfur, but the phosphorus was in the rocks. And you also told me in Forbes that uh, Earth is actually nitrogen poor that we only received one nitrogen atom in 100,000, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that Earth got its <laughs> yeah. nitrogen from organic carbon-rich meteorites that hit the forming Earth. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, that's the statement that, that, you know, the Earth is, is, is highly nitrogen-poor, and if you look at meteorites, they are nitrogen-poor as well. The carbonaceous molecules that are in those meteorites have nitrogen inside of them a little bit, and that's probably, you know, how we got our carbon and how we got uh, our nitrogen. And uh, one of your colleagues, or maybe you written in a paper, I uh, have this in my notes, that ammonia, methane, and methanol all form on the surfaces of interstellar grains and are that's incorporated right. into these icy gra- uh, grain mantles. How do they survive this interstellar trip and yeah. become incorporated <laughs> into planets? Yeah, so if you're beyond the ice line... 
right? Those pebbles are coated in ices. So those silicate-rich pebbles uh, are coated in ices, and those ices are water, carbon dioxide, methanol, methane, ammonia. And we see these ices. We, they're actually present in the solar system. They're comets. So comets are, you know, basically dirty ice balls. They're, they're basically these silicates with, you know, some carbonaceous material. And then these ices, the water, the methanol, and so on and so forth. And so they're there. Those ices are in our solar system. They come by every year or so with some comet that has an apparition, and astronomers can observe them, and they see these ices coming off. And it's possible that the, you could get material to the Earth by the Earth accreting just rocks with very little ices. Or if, you know, a comet got thrown from, you know, near Jupiter and uh, thrown to the Earth and hit the Earth, that that's a, a really nice way to supply material to the Earth because the comets have so much of these the, the volatile material, these ices, uh, that life uses. So it, it's the, there is a question as to how the, whether the Earth got its water, for example, from materials that we sample in, say, the asteroid belt, where it's hydrated minerals in, in rock, so basically hydras, just silicates that, that, have, have, hydra, that have water basically incorporated inside of them, or whether you could get your, your water from a bunch of comets hitting you. It's more likely that it's the nearby material than the really far away material, such as comets, that comprise the young Earth. But it was a dynamic time when the Earth was being born, and you can't rule it out. How important are ammonia, methane, and methanol to the formation of life? It's not, you know, the. It's not clear to me, you know, if the Earth formed inside of this the water ice line, uh -huh. that ammonia would evaporate, the methanol would have evaporated, and so, in as much as our our story, the the baseline story, I think would say that those particular substances were not provided. Uh, you know, we got the nitrogen in other form than, say, ammonia, for example. Mm -hmm. But if uh, there was significant cometary supply, which, again, is considered unlikely because it's difficult to do, then you could supply that material and it might be important. What m probably is more important is the material that we see in meteorites than these ices that we see in comets. So uh, you and, and one of your former doctoral students, Ilsa Cleave, asserted in 2014 that up to half of Earth's water is likely older than the solar system itself, despite the fact that a lot of it formed in situ, as you talked about, and that between 30 and 50% came from the, our parent molecular cloud. In other words, a molecular cloud from which our solar system ultimately originated. That's right. So, so the, the idea is that the Earth has a, an excess of deuterium relative to hydrogen. So deuterium is a, a, a proton and a neutron, a proton and neutron. So, you know, we, we know of this as heavy water, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in fact, all, all water in the solar system has this enhancement. And what, what, what do I mean by that is if you look out there in just general inner space, uh, the generic DDH ratio is, there's one deuterium uh, for every 10 to the fifth hydrogen atoms, okay? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Earth has about one in ten to the fourth. So we have an excess of deuterium. Where did that come from? That come from, at least in, in the paper that uh, with Ilse Cleves and I, we showed that that likely, that signature likely was implanted before the sun was born. So uh, um, basically the age of the solar system plus about a million years. And, and that was implanted when water first formed. And so the water that made it onto the earth first formed a million years. That is that hydrogen and oxygen found each other and then they made their way to the earth. And that water itself is 4.6 billion years old. That's the solar system plus a million. So what you're saying is possible that, uh, you know, when you're taking a dip in a swimming pool or or, or uh, taking a bath or or uh, running out into the ocean, that you may be touching molecules of water that originated in our solar system's molecular cloud from prior it's, it's, to its formation. That's a stretch. It's, 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 a little, it's a little tricky because, you know, the, the Earth can shuffle the hydrogen around from, you know, one molecule to another in, in the mantle. So, so it, it may be that the water has all reformed on the Earth, but it wouldn't be here, right? That, that, that oxygen found that hydrogen, all of the water on the Earth, that oxygen found that hydrogen a million years before the birth of the solar system. No, that's a, that, a man's extraordinary. So it's really cool. It didn't, yeah, just as a concept. So let's touch briefly on the uh, chemical trajectory, as you call it. Uh, what happens when there's a transition of the chemical enrichment between from diffuse gas to dense cloud, the ultraviolet radiation in our parent molecular cloud from which our sun was actually born? How did that affect? the astrochemistry that ultimately made up our solar system. No mind. So ultraviolet radiation, right, we're all uh, aware that we have to put sunscreen on, right? And and the reason for that is because of ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And why is that? That's because ultraviolet radiation has enough energy to break the bonds of molecules that are in our body. And so no surprise out there in space, if there's abundant and copious ultraviolet radiation – you will break the molecules apart. And so part of the story of, of molecules and, and, and their, well, the way they make it to a planet is how they survive in, in an environment where the radiation field is changing. So when you start out in just the general interstellar space, there's, there's a diffuse background of ultraviolet radiation. And it's everywhere, and the molecules are broken apart, and it's all atoms. And then when a supernova comes on uh, and hits a, hits some of this gas and pushes it together so that it gets denser, it's able to shield the molecules from the destructive effects of radiation. Why is that? Well, those little dust grains are about the same size as the wavelength of ultraviolet radiation. So the dust that the Earth is made of, those dust grains that the Earth is made of, are the reason that molecules form and why molecular clouds exist. Molecular clouds are the the clouds out of which all stars are born. Okay, so they form, those molecules form because they protect it from the destructive effects of UV, UV radiation from dust grains. And that's the story that happens all the way throughout. It's how much 
dust you have to absorb absorb your UV and protect your molecules and allow them to to exist and make their way uh, onto a planet eventually. And so, what is the origin of the of the UV radiation? Is it the supernovae, or or is it these large O, B, and A the, the, blue yeah, hot blue so stars? That's a that's a fair point. When you know in in the general interstellar medium, it's it's the the radiation field from uh, massive stars. So these are so we go by spectral types in astronomy. But let's just let's just talk that stars that are five, ten, twenty times more massive than the sun, they emit copious uh, radiation at ultraviolet wavelengths and and form this dilute general background. Of course, if you're born nearby one of these stars, it's it's higher than than average. By some accounts of the sun-like stars, our own spectral type is not likely the most well-suited for the evolution of complex life. In fact, some astronomers think that K-type stars, the orange dwarfs, that are slightly cooler but longer-lived, are best suited for complex life. Maybe. <laughs> that's a, I think, you know, that, that's the, 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 the trick is that the, 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 there's less ultraviolet radiation around uh, the, the K dwarfs, right? But the G dwarfs are a little bit warmer. And when you're warmer, you allow for slightly more chemistry to proceed. And maybe that's important. I don't know. And, and so I would say maybe. The jury is out, and and that's that. You could go ahead and posit that, and we will test it. And I hope we're going to be looking for life out there in the next ten to twenty years. And you know, maybe in my lifetime, I hope we'll we'll know the answer. So, do you think uh, our solar system's chemical makeup is rare? I think that uh, most planets are born with the materials of life and uh, available. And what I don't know is uh, the amount. What puzzles you most about our own Earth's astrochemical makeup? Yeah, I, what I, 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 I would love to know the answer, you know, to, to you know, what, what is important, right? We have this tiny sprinkling of carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and that seems to be the right ingredient for us to be here. But what if you had a little bit more uh, or a little bit less, what would happen? Is plate tectonics important? Could we ever figure that out? Uh, I, I would really love to know all those things. It's, it's not even really an astrochemical question. It's a astrobiological, geophysical, geobiological question. I, I don't know. But, you know, that's the beauty of where we are right now, that we're at the intersection of all these disciplines of science. I can, you know, even go beyond the confines of what I'm comfortable with and, and try to think more broadly about life. And so I, I'm really curious about that. So what should the research community be doing that it isn't in regards to astrochemistry? That's a, a good question. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're That's about a loaded to, question. <laughs> yeah. So we're about to launch the, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is uh, going to be the flagship uh, NASA uh, Space Telescope, and it's going to be amazing. And uh, it will be able to enable us to observe, look for water in planets, and we're going to look at water in planet-forming disks uh, and try to understand, you know, part of the, the picture that I've been describing. You know, I, I might describe this picture here 
uh, in general terms, but the specifics are highly uncertain, right? At different stages, different outcomes are still possible, and, and we just don't know. But the one thing we don't really have a good handle on is, uh, for example, where the snow lines are located. So, for example, where is that water ice-to-gas transition? And James Webb, it'll be very hard for us to figure that out. It and will, we don't it, know. It will be. It, you're saying it will be very hard with James Webb to it, figure that out. Yeah, James Webb is going to do an amazing job at getting the water content in the inner in the inner system. Uh, it's it's going to do a great job. Uh, uh, you know, measuring the water content of a planet-forming disk in in the terrestrial planet in the region where the terrestrial planets are going to be born, but it won't be able to determine very easily the the gas to ice transition radius. It'll it'll be hard to do. Uh, and the other thing that it won't be able, it'll be very difficult to do is to measure the total mass of the disk, right? So when we when we do chemistry, we, we need to do abundances relative to something, and we generally do it relative to hydrogen. But we can't easily observe hydrogen in space uh, just because the physics of the molecule itself make it so that it doesn't emit very readily at the typical conditions of a planet-forming disk, Right. all right? So we just can't observe it. And so we use proxy tracers, and there's a really great proxy tracer called hydrogen deuteride, uh, which is, you know, just a deuterium atom uh, instead of a hydrogen atom. That will enable us to determine the mass of the disk, and if you, at the wavelengths where you can observe this thing, so it's what we call the far infrared. So the James Webb will observe the near and mid-infrared region of the spectrum of light, and what's missing is the far infrared part. And if you observe the far infrared, you could get this hydrogen deuteride, and you could get other transitions or other uh, emissions of the water vapor molecule that will enable you to determine the location of that ice line. And so I would like for us to build a far infrared space telescope uh, that enables that science. And uh, we developed a concept, a, a team of which I was a part of, uh, and it's called the Origin Space Telescope. Uh, astronomy has this big thing that happens every decade where we look at where the priorities are, and this is one of the, of the potential possibilities within the next few months. We should find out whether they're going to build something like Origins. Uh, we may not, because there's other competing uh, ideas out there. But I'm an astrochemist. That's what I would like. So let me uh, follow up on something you just mentioned. So you're saying that although JWST is going to be great for determining the total water budget in a given planetary system, it's not going to be able to delineate where the ice line ends and where the gas phase of this water begins. Is that right? It's, it's, you're not going to be able to derive it directly from the data. And why is that important uh, for, uh, to uh, the, astrobiologists? So, it, 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 so you know the the ice line is a that's a good point. I didn't I didn't really get into that. Our theory suggests so why, for example, in our solar system, why are the gas giants out at you know five times the Earth Sun distance, and the terrestrial worlds? closer to the stars. So why aren't there gas giants, you know, where Mars is or Venus? And we think, we think that bodies could grow bigger beyond the ice line. That is the ice line itself, the presence of water ice coated grains beyond that ice line 
allowed you, or what I call pebbles, allowed you to grow bigger things. So you could big the build the cores of the of Jupiter, which is a five to ten Earth mass sized rocky thing that then captured gas from the surrounding nebula and made your gas giant. All right, inside the ice line, you were only able to make you know one Earth mass or less, right? And we think that that transition is very important. And since we're observing, or we have observed, lots of planets, super Earths, mini Neptunes, most of those all lie inside the ice line. And there are theories out there saying that the, all of those planets were like born at, beyond the ice line and then migrated in inwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so understanding where the ice line is around different types of stars and if you can get at evolution in terms of uh, systems of different ages will help us piece together the puzzle of planet formation and how planets are born. Ted, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment and learn more? Sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not of the, the Twitter <laughs> generation, uh, so, so I'm still uh, uh, old school email. Uh, E-E-B-E-R-G-I-N at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. You can Google me, Edwin Bergen, and that'll give you my address. Happy to talk to anyone. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Ted Bergen, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of Earth's well, own chemical history. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>